I remember back in the day I read, I think it was a master's thesis from Kevin Sue at Stanford. And the title of it was How Much is Enough? And it was just talking about like how much security is enough. How do we answer that question? And I just thought it was a fascinating question. And it really did spark my interest in how do we measure security? How do we know what we're doing is effective and useful? And honestly, spent the rest of my career chasing various pieces of data because I think it can shed light on how we do security better. Welcome to the Building Cyber Resilience Podcast by Resilience. I'm Dr. Ann Irvin, Chief Data Scientist and Vice President of Product Management. And I'm Richard Syerson, Chief Risk Officer. I'm excited to introduce you to today's guests who played instrumental roles in the creation and continuation of Verizon's DBIR, the Data Breach Investigation Report. At the top of the show, you heard Wade Baker, partner and co-founder of the Scientia Institute. I like telling data-driven stories about security, and I like working with sources, vendors, companies that have that information. And that's what we do at Scientia. I mean, security companies come to us, they have these interesting data sets. They say, will you analyze this data and help us write reports? But before he founded Scientia, way back in the early 2000s, Wade was working on the first DBIR. He had just joined CyberTrust before its acquisition by Verizon when an old friend called him up. That old friend was Dave Highlander. I was wanting to do something a little different. Um, and I, I reached out to Wade and said, do you have any cool projects that you know of or any gigs that, that have something uh, have something interesting going on? Because um, he, he was in the DC area and he was just a little bit more plugged in than I was at the time. And he said, actually, I do. Uh, we're kicking around the idea of creating uh, an actual data-driven uh, report about breaches. Uh, if you'd like to come give us a hand. And I said, sure. Today, Dave is the Senior Manager of Threat Intelligence and DBIR team at Verizon. That report, that cool project Wade told Dave about, would go on to become one of the most groundbreaking data sets in the world of cybersecurity. Dave gives us a quick primer on what the DBIR is. We put together the first one and it was it was released in 2008. At that time, it was based on 500 data breaches that were confirmed data breaches, meaning the attribute of confidentiality was known to be affected. And so it was strictly Verizon data. And so this was the first time that anyone did you know, really data-driven stuff. And so that's what we've been doing ever since. It's sort of a rundown of what's going on in the world of... Uh, data breaches and, and what's relevant and what's not as far as the threat landscape and finally do what we can to sort of uh, help organizations realize what maybe their biggest risks are and address them. In this episode, both Dave and Wade share behind the scenes insights into how the DBIR came about, how it's evolving today, and how CISOs can utilize the data efficiently. Other themes we explore include how your cybersecurity team can build better processes and become more resilient, and how firms like Scientia are building on the DBI report and providing even more specialized insight. We began our conversation with Dave sharing what happened next when he jumped at Wade's invitation to join him and other great minds to create the first DBIR. At the time, Peter Tippett, who's a MD, PhD, very intelligent, talented guy, was Wade's boss. 
And then Brian Sarton, who was head of the uh, in investigative response at the time, they, they had come up with the idea of the DVIR uh, between them. And so we really sat down, put, to, put together the first one, pushed it through. And um, because at the time, you know, people were very nervous about what we're going to talk about actual data breaches. You know, it was it was a very it, there was nothing else quite like that. And so people were very even within the com our company were very concerned about it. But it got done, uh, and uh, it was a it was a great success, and I have just stayed there ever since because you know I really like the people I work with, and the data is always interesting. There's something new every year, and um, so I get excited around February time frame because that's when we start seeing what the data has to say and kind of get our juices flowing for each year. Dave says the report has come a long way since the early days, not only because of technological advances, but also due to the number of participants and contributors sharing their data sets. So the report covers about this year, about 23,000 or so security incidents and about 5,200 confirmed data breaches. And what we do is we look at those from a from a year over year perspective and from a current year perspective and just sort of see what do these breaches mean? Like what, who are the actors behind them? What tactics are they using? Are they targeting organizations? Or are they just, just uh, spray and pray type attacks? You know, and basically we're just trying to find out the how and the why behind data breaches. And the answer to the second part of your question with who's involved, the first three years it was Verizon only. At that point, the Secret Service, the U.S. Secret Service contacted us and said they would like to join along with the Dutch high-tech crime unit. And so they were our first two contributors. And then since then, we have sort of snowballed into, I think this year we had 87 contributors uh, from 82 countries around the world. And they provide data to us every year. We don't ask for names. We don't know one of the name of the organization, but we do like to know the vertical and the region and how big it is, that sort of thing. And so, so yeah, we run the analysis on all of those, and that's that's basically what it is. The process is really year round, right? So, like, uh, it, we're we're writing for a certain amount of time, but the collecting, aggregating, analyzing—I mean, it's 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 pretty much a a year round thing. The data is purely derived from publicly disclosed to law enforcement incidents. Is yeah. that is that true? No. Okay. It is yes, and, yes and no. Okay. Reported. So, re what does reported mean then? Yeah. So basically, let's say you're you're in the U.S. and you're in healthcare or you're in the public sector. You are required to report things to whatever the governing body is that that you report to that may not really be necessarily a breach, right? Like, and if you're in another industry or another geographical area you don't have that requirement to report it up to an agency. And so since some of our data comes from law enforcement, like you just said, that's why we see a good bit of, of certain things. And then other times you have to sort of make it public by if informing your customers, right? So this happened and we have to let you know and folks are more likely, it seems, that many organizations are more likely to reach out to a forensic firm to get some help. And, and you know, that increases the likelihood that we may end up with the basic details, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we never know what company it came from, but, you know, mm -hmm. what industry, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's incidents that are 
required to be reported to somebody, essentially. A big percentage of them are, but not all. Uh, a good bit is just voluntary. Okay. Uh, so we're, we, you know, we are a forensics firm. We do this for a living. We like the report. Uh, we, we think that it helps the industry get better. So we're going to share our some of our data with you uh, cool, in cool. effort to do that. So it. it's it's always voluntary. And many times it would not, if it weren't coming from a contributor, you know, it would not be publicly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Got it. And then one other thing, we do do our best also to code just publicly known breaches as well. Mm -hmm. So like VCDB, the various community database, we're, we're constantly adding to that when we see stuff that's, that's covered mm -hmm. in news or in on computer sites. Uh, that we learn about. If there's enough information to get the details, mm -hmm. then we add that to the data set as well. I've always wondered this. Why does Verizon invest so much into the creation of this report? Well, there we go into the to the area of opinion. I can give you my informed opinion, but I can't, of course, speak for the company. The report, because it was in large part because it was the first of its kind, but also because from the very beginning, we set out to do it from an academically rigorous point of view. And we wanted to be as precise as we could. We wanted to um, keep it absolutely free of marketing, et cetera, right? And so we're not trying to sell anything in the report and that thing, that sort of thing. As a consequence of, of that, and just the fact that data breaches continue to be relevant over the years, it's become a highly regarded report in the industry. And I think uh, since Verizon has its own uh, security wing, if you will, I think it just recognizes the value that the report represents. You know, it reflects positively on, on Verizon. And I think also because in Verizon, there's a there's an emphasis or, or a desire to uh, collaborate and 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 make things better, and I think that's what we do with the report. We collaborate with a lot of other agencies, and our, our primary goal from the very beginning uh, was how can we make the industry better, and how can we get more folks involved in this kind of a grassroots type thing. There's no doubt that the DBIR has made a significant impact on the industry, equipping CISOs and security experts with critical insights into what they are facing each year so that they can build effective strategies. But Dave shares that he has discovered an emerging trend that points to professionals from all industry backgrounds finding value in the DBIR. So interestingly enough, over the years, I've been contacted by friends in really wildly divergent organizations, you know, like uh, uh, a guy who uh, in the railroad works for railroad uh, bankers, uh, accountants, and uh, they say, hey, I saw your name in this thing that our management sent down to us and it's uh, required reading for everyone in the department. And so I think the first thing that they do is they use it to make their employees more conscious of what's going on, you know, like be aware of the security aspect of, of our work, right? So we see a lot of upper management pushing it down to managers and directors and saying, hey, you know, make all of your, at least all of your leadership read this. Uh, and then the other thing, of course, that they can do is we break down the threats via industry vertical as well. So, uh, you know, if you're uh, a CISO in, in, in financial or, or uh, manufacturing, you, you can see sort of what, you know, as you know, Rick, it, there's no 
one silver bullet to fix everything, but you, and you have to address everything, but knowing where your real problem areas are is very helpful. And so I think that's what the report does. It, it really uh, is able to shed a light to say, Hey, this is, this is what you're most likely to face. And so then they can go to their C-suite and say, Hey, these are our problems. This is what I think we need to effectively address it, make a case, a use case for more resources or uh, more appropriate resources, allocation, that kind of thing. Dave's identification of this trend of cross-industry use highlights just how important data collection and analysis is, and the growing interest in cybersecurity as a vital sign of company health. While reviewing nitty-gritty data and trend forecasting might not be top of mind for all industries, the DBIR is unique in that it tells a story, and everyone loves a good story. So. We always say we don't go into it with a story to tell. We wait for the data to tell its own story. It is a pretty big report. And so each year we struggle a lot with how to make it more concise, but not make it like reading the dictionary, you know, like not make it boring, but make it more brief. And uh, so, so that's, that's a, big, a big part of it. Some of the things that we've done in the report that I think have been most insightful have come from either contributors or readers or, you know, I, I would like to see this or that. And that's led to a discussion that we have. And then we go from there and we create something in that, to meet that need. So, so please send us your requests, your queries. And we'll, if we can answer, we will. Um, and so DBIR at Verizon.com is the easiest way to get to us. I love Dave's recommendations there for CISOs to use the DBIR as a sort of forecast for what we might expect to face and what resources we should have lined up. Being prepared and agile always pays off. As one of the founding authors behind the DBIR's creation and execution, Wade Baker has garnered a wealth of accomplishments and wisdom during his nearly 20 years in cybersecurity risk and metrics. So. I came out of the system administration, network administration side, got some security training, kind of fell in love with it. And pretty quickly, honestly, I got into some of the more risk assessment and management aspects. I remember back in the day, I read a, I think it was a master's thesis from Kevin Sue at Stanford. And the title of it was How Much is Enough? Uh, and it was just talking about like how much security is enough. How do we answer that question? And I just thought it was a fascinating question. And it really did spark my interest in how do we measure security? How do we know what we're doing is effective and useful? How do we measure all the things that we need to measure around risk? And honestly, spent the rest of my career chasing various pieces of data that might somehow shed some <laughs> light on that. So I think we'll probably talk about, you know, the data breach investigations report during my time at Verizon. That was almost an accidental thing. I just heard an incident responder talking about, well, we see this in most cases. And I said, hey, do you actually have data on that? And then, it, you know, we went to go collect it. And then a lot of things sprang from there and just trying to chase nuggets of data because I think it can shed light on how we do security better. Wade shares how his early days at Verizon and creating the DBIR with Dave are pivotal to the work he is doing now at Scientia. 
Yeah. So, you know, when I was at Verizon, we were publishing the data breach report and that's a closed data set, right? We couldn't release the primary data because those were incidents that our investigators had done or were given to us by the Secret Service. There were just or other organizations that we couldn't just give it to the community, but we wanted to. And we wanted to facilitate people studying incidents like we did. And we would classify them using Verus and throw them in a GitHub repository. And anyone could download those events and, and analyze it. And it's a, it's a great resource. And it's you know pretty easy to use. And there's some documentation and things like that. And then there's what I would call you know digested or analyzed data sets, which isn't the raw data. But the data breach investigations report is one of those. They share very rich information. And if you're not looking to actually analyze it and you just kind of want to take advantage of somebody else analyzing the data for you, that's an amazing resource. I mean, I have been gone now. I left in 2015, so seven years. They've almost done as many DBIRs without me as they did with me before I left. And it's still going strong and... I, I am thrilled to see that, and it kind of uh, is an indicator that they're serving a valuable purpose to the community, and people still read it and, and are excited when it releases, and you know it's uh, cited all the time. Scientia is a data science and research firm that builds upon the idea of DBIR and also provides client-specific analysis of their business's own data. Most of them come and say, hey, can you make us a DBIR? And I'm like, probably not. Let's... <laughs> Let's let's be realistic. That thing came around at a particular point in time where there was nothing else like it and it's hard to reproduce, but we can do really good interesting research that, you know, will demonstrate the value of what you're doing and also, you know, raise the bar of, of knowledge and practice uh, in the industry. So that's the kind of thing that we that we do at uh, at Scientia. I've been pronouncing it wrong. It's okay. We actually have a shirt that says, however you say it, it means good research. And there's like three different pronunciations of, uh, of scientia or scientia or scientia. Or, <laughs> so we're all good. It. I love it. So what are some common themes in terms of the questions your, your customers are asking and, and things they want to know? So we've done a lot of research related to uh, cyber risk quantification. That's, that's been a major theme and multiple different things that, that we've done. And we kind of always gravitate back toward that. So cyber risk quantification is basically the, the effort to quantify cyber risk. Now, I know I just answered the, the question with the acronym reversed, but you know when you talk about risk, you will get lots of different answers about what that actually means. You know, essentially risk and how we try to assess it and manage it is exposure to loss, right? There's some, some amount of usually monetary uh, assets that we're going to lose over a given period of time. And that's what we're trying to measure, right? Because we, we want to know, is this hundreds of millions of dollars? Is it billions of dollars? Is that next week over the next five years? And, and cyber risk quantification is trying to measure the frequency of how often security-related incidents occur, how much they cost when they do, and we try to put these together and, and study that exposure. The data set that we have started with is the Advisen cyber loss data. Advisen is maybe many listeners aren't familiar with them because they're not a security company, not generally thought of as a security data set. But on the uh, cyber insurance side, they are pretty well known. 
And a lot of the organizations that calculate what they should be charging you for cyber insurance probably uh, use the advice on cyber loss data in some way. It's pretty shallow. If you compare it to things that we've mentioned, we mentioned the DBIR, for instance, that's extremely rich because a lot of that comes from forensic analysis of events. So it's, it's very, very deep, very rich. And I would say advising is kind of the opposite. It's very broad, but pretty shallow in the sense that you, you, know, you know a lot of incidents that come to public knowledge. It's a great collection of, of those things, but there's not an extreme amount of detail uh, involved. So, But from a risk perspective, if I want to know the frequency of publicly known incidents and known publicly recorded losses associated with them, it's a, it's a good data set for that kind of thing. Wade's new venture with Scientia offers a fascinating window into the impact the DBIR had across industries. I wanted to dig deeper and understand what their consumer demographics look like and what their motivation is for seeking out cyber risk quantification. So this leads to my question. Yeah. Is the question that your, your consumers are asking is, hey, I want to know the likelihood, and I want to forecast the likelihood of X, Y, and Z happening given the value, and this is maybe from a security company that's coming to you because they've built some magic widgets, given the value of my new super security tool, what's the likelihood of us being, or is it not about doing forecasts at all? It's about a different set of problems. I guess what I'm trying to get at is, are they asking those sorts of questions? How do I get better at forecasting? How do I get better at understanding what I spend money on? How do I blah, blah, blah? Or is it a different, whole different set of questions? So to answer that, I, I need to define the audience or, or maybe our, our client a little better. So most of the cyber risk work that we do, there are security vendors that's, that will sponsor that research, but they're not initiating the request. They're not coming to us and saying, hey, we have this data set, please answer these questions and help us produce a report. We're sort of doing that and we say, hey, who out there wants to sponsor so, so they're not asking those kinds of questions in, in general. Who is asking those kinds of questions are the enterprise, generally enterprise level risk professionals who are trying to use the results that we include in these reports, right? They, they absolutely have those kinds of questions and they will get emails after um, we release something and, and there's all kinds of follow-up. Hey, what about this? You know, how am I interpreting this correctly? And and yes, they're they're trying to figure out everything from which scenarios occur most often to I'm trying to justify various expenditures. And if I read between the lines, you know, am I is 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 this an accurate statement? And where I think is an area where you are going there, you know, the whole topic of control effectiveness is asked, I would say it's one of the top three questions that is, is asked, something that would fall under that umbrella. And I mean, we've been able to do some things there, but generally when we're looking at that public incident data set, we don't know what those organizations had in place at the time. You know, right. we can kind of back our way into it and say, well, here are the techniques that threat actors used in this incident if those details are published. Right. Therefore, I can infer that maybe they didn't do X, Y, or Z and should have been. But that, that whole notion of control effectiveness, I, 
I would like to be able to study far more often and hope to be able to one day, but it's, it's definitely asked a lot the organizations that, that read our risk-related uh, work. So you just brought up a really interesting idea, working backwards. So it's kind of a form of observability. You're getting some telemetry coming from this black box of public events, right? And, you're, and you mentioned you could potentially infer, um, you could learn from that what might be the causal factors. We'll still be uncertain, right? But you could start weighting some causal factors there. Are you using things like MITRE ATT&CK or other sorts of things where you're looking at the data and creating some weighted inferences and saying, well, while we're highly uncertain, this is what we're seeing, right? And so what we're not seeing is this thing over here. We're not seeing, like, if you were to invest in this area, that would have nothing to do necessarily with this. But are you doing any sort of inference like that? And if not, still say something interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to be able to say that, yes, we are. Uh, MITRE ATT&CK is something we've spent the better part of two years, I think, developing ways to classify the information that we're given both from direct from the advising data set, but also from additional sources and things that we can infer about those incidents to recognize as many attack related techniques uh, and associate it with that incident that we can for the reason that you're talking about. Because once we start doing that, you know, attack has each technique is linked to mitigations, which can be used at various uh, tactics as you go down the kill chain or event tree or whatever you want to call it. So we've done a lot of work in that. And even today, my colleague, David Seversky was analyzing data and surfacing you know, the, the top uh, attack techniques that we're seeing across all of these incidents. And, and I'm like, yes, we're, it's working, fantastic. Yes. So, so yes, and uh, I, think, I think there's a lot of promise in, in doing that. And in many ways, you know, it's, it's, those were some of the early things that we did in the data breach uh, investigations report, you know, because right. we did have the very detailed information. And in many cases, we did have the controls that were not in place because, for instance, if it was a payment card breach, you had to fill out the PCI industry report and say right. where they were lacking in those controls. And that was part of the record. So I kind of miss having all those details bundled together and being able to analyze it. But you can get there, kind of triangulate it from external sources in, in various ways. You mentioned risk managers as a consumer. Do you mean not necessarily CISOs? Do you mean not necessarily directors of security? Do you mean actually like a risk manager that can mean different things to different folks? Can you talk about that persona, who it is? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would say that we have a pretty wide slice that read these reports and they probably read them for different reasons. You know, the, the I've, I've talked to CISOs who, who read it. The risk reports is what I'm referring to, uh, the IRIS information risk insight studies. And, and they're wanting to know, okay, about how much do these things cost? Just so when I talk to other executives, I have a number in the back of my head and, and you know, what are the sort of upper bound, lower bound kind of, kind of things and, and types of incidents they seem to be really interested in. But yeah, they're risk managers. I mean, there, there are teams uh, in a lot of organizations now, I think it's increasingly common that there's a person or multiple people that are focused exclusively on cyber risk quantification, some aspect yes. of it, right? So, so they're extremely interested in the models. And that's another thing we've started to share is like, okay, it, here's the best fit distribution. Here are the parameters you need for that distribution. 
so that if if you want to go and you're using some tool out there or spreadsheets or whatever it is, you can begin to do some of these things yourself. The increasing interest in this sort of data collection from Scientia underscores Dave's earlier points about more and more diverse industries wanting to understand how to use their data for better performance and service. Wade expands on how Scientia serves these diverse industries by customizing their analysis. So we we have a few different client profiles. One, I'll just say security vendors or other organizations that have data that want to publish research. You know, if, if you have good data and you want to share that with the community, Come to us because we do it better than, than, than most others. We will treat your data with the respect that it deserves and, and publish something that, that is compelling and rigorous at the same time. So, so that's, that's one set. But what I think you're referring to is there are consumers of our research reports and um, you know we'll get questions and we want people to read these reports and, and be able to use them. So we try to facilitate that. I don't want to get into to advertising, but because of those research reports and because we've had lots of interest in people asking questions like, hey, you published the overall loss curve. I'd like to know one about medium-sized financial service organizations. Can you do that? You know, we, we have started a service called the Iris Risk Retina, which we take that same data set and we're analyzing it based on sort of sector and and size brackets for organizations that want to make it a little bit more customized to their peer set. And, but we're doing the same kinds of things, right? Loss event frequency and loss magnitude. And how often do we see these certain types of incidents versus those types of incidents, attack and various related details, all of that kind of stuff. So we're we're baking that into that service, which is where, uh, you know, if an organization out there is listening and kind of trying to get started with baseline estimates or cyber risk quantification, love to talk to you because that's that's what we're trying to do there is give that starting point for, hey, this is based on historical data for organizations like yours. You know, it's better than guessing. While the DBIR paved the way, Firms like Scientia are expanding the frontier and making these data sets accessible. The fact that you no longer have to be a giant like Verizon to organize and gain insights into your data is a huge leap forward for cybersecurity. Wade discussed attacks and loss, but there's another layer of cybersecurity that makes up a good percentage of the data. I asked Dave to give us some insights. What is the next thing that you think, uh, going into the noble known, kind of unforced error, where you like, gosh, this is bad. People are not doing this well. It keeps yeah. happening. Mm-hmm. They shouldn't well, do that. What, what is that yeah. you think in the, in the, that shows up in the data? So misconfiguration would certainly be, be the first. And then uh, I would say publishing errors are probably uh, the next. And I can actually, actually get you the official answer later uh, by looking at the data. But, but publishing errors are, are, are very common, whether that is... Uh, something that should be intranet facing, making it making it publicly facing, or sending an email with an attachment to many people, uh, accidentally putting the wrong attachment right, or uh, sending um, and, and sometimes it's in documents. And in, for instance, in the financial services industry, oddly enough, this year we see a lot of um, publishing problems that are due to sending out 
paper documents uh, with a one-off error, you know, person B gets person C, you know, that sort of thing. So we see, still see a lot of that. And so those kind of things are the main ones when it when it comes to, to errors. Kind of an insider threat without, without the malintent. Absolutely, which brings up a good point. So the misuse, I want to say, is around 13% um, this year. And um, even in that privilege misuse insider threat thing, error is about four times more likely to happen. I think it's 3.3. We see people making mistakes about three times as often as we see people doing things intentionally to harm the company is what I'm trying to get across here. And even when they are knowingly misusing their access, sometimes it's not malicious. Sometimes it's, this is too clunky. I'm in too big of a hurry and I have to use this unapproved software or this other whatever workaround to get my job done. And um, so, you know, misuse is certainly uh, an issue that we see a lot of, but error is always, uh, or that we continue to see, I wouldn't say we see a lot of what we see, but error is always uh, much higher. And uh, usually it's, it's, you know, it's, it's just honest mistakes, but still damaging. I think Dave's points about errors, including honest mistakes and even misused access without malicious intent is really key because these kinds of errors are ones we can make a priority to decrease through smart processes and clear company guidelines. But building that kind of cyber resilient company strategy from creation to rollout to gaining company-wide buy-in takes time and energy. I ask Wade for his thoughts. So we talk a lot about what makes companies cyber resilient. Uh, I'm curious how, how you would answer that. So I have actually some new and fresh thoughts on this. We're doing some research right now on resilience. And this was based on a survey I'd rather have real data, but it was a survey of thousands of, of organizations. Uh, and we asked some questions related to what do they perceive resilience to encompass? You know, we get all kinds of, all kinds of stuff, how that differs by uh, different roles and that kind of thing. We had sort of nine, nine, I think, elements of resilience. I can read them off to you. It's like mitigating financial losses stemming from security incidents, uh, keeping up with the demands and growth of the business, adapting to unexpected external change events or trends, preventing major cybersecurity incidents and losses, so on and so forth. It's just stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And we asked them, how are they doing in each of those? And that was on a scale from like, utterly failing to we're doing really well mm -hmm. on those. And so we could measure each each one of those, but then we sort of crunched it all together to get sort of an overall resilience um, score. So if they were doing great at all of those, uh, then they would have better resilience according to this than, mm -hmm. than if they were doing terrible at them all. And I was super interested to learn that the control that had the highest degree of correlation with an increase in, in overall resilience was to identify your key systems and data, which I feel like goes mm -hmm. back to <laughs> first principles mm -hmm. of, uh, of security. Right, yeah. right. So that was, that was number one in this, uh, this study that we, that we found. 
While Wade's answer offers specific areas that you should be focused on and really highlights the value of systems and processes, Dave zooms out. His answer to building cyber resilient companies emphasizes the big picture issues that he sees holding back businesses regardless of their size. If I had to say just off the cuff, it's do the basics well, and that's what we're not seeing, right? We did a small to medium business comparison versus a large org, right? This was many years ago. And uh, there were uh, uh, several differences. A couple of years ago, we, we thought, well, let's revisit that. So we did it again. And we noticed that there was a real convergence of, of the threats. Like the, the, there weren't, this happens if you're large, this happens if you're an SMB. This year, we did a very small business, which is 10 employees or, or under, right? Like mom and pop type thing. And the reason we did it is we get questions like, hey, I'm in law enforcement or I'm with a state government and I get asked questions by these people. What do I tell them? And so we created this section. And so we found that the same basic problems all the way up the, you know, it's a lot of stolen creds, reusing creds, ransomware, but a huge percentage of what we see, regardless of size, location, industry, uh, if, if it was just sort of more common sense, multi-factor authentication, take the extra 10 minutes to make sure you at least password protected that server, you know, like that, that kind of stuff is what we're seeing. So because we see so much of it, that would have to be what I would suggest people do. I love that answer. Yeah, that, that resonates for sure. I am so pleased to have these two great pioneers on bringing security data to the masses. It's just been great. And it's ironic, oftentimes you'll hear people say, there's just not enough data. We can't do measurement. We can't proceed. And Dave and Wade are here to say, hey, here's the data. You can do better. We're going to help. I think this is just exciting times to be in. Dave and Wade both had a really important part in understanding and sort of having the vision that we needed to collect data about security incidents and make that data available to the community. They really had that vision and, and pushed it forward. And it was great to hear, hear the stories about that experience from them. Thank you to Dave and Wade for their time, expertise, and valuable insights, and to our production team at Come Alive Creative. And thank you for listening. Follow the Building Cyber Resilience podcast wherever you listen so you don't miss an episode. We'll catch you on the next show.